Now, Father, we praise you this morning that you are the friend of sinners, that you love sinners like us, and have sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place that we might be forgiven. Father, we praise you for your word this morning, as every morning, because it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It guides us and directs us and keeps us from disaster. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to drink it in and to receive it even as your Holy Spirit gives it this morning from this, your book. May you be glorified in it, Father, as you work changes in our lives. I pray, Father, that we would have an attitude this morning that is willing to engage in, in introspection, that we would see with the eyes of our mind what our hearts truly are like. And Father, I pray that from that you would produce great change for your glory and for our own inexpressible joy, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working through 1 Corinthians for some time, and we are now in, I'm sorry, not 12, but 13, 1 Corinthians 13. And who would have thought that this passage, which so many of us would profess to know so well, would have packed such a punch to our souls as we've studied it together? I can hardly remember a time when I've studied a passage of Scripture that proved so convicting and so encouraging and so empowering as the one that we've been studying these past three weeks. And we've been learning... We've been learning about what the meaning of love is. What is love? What it means to love. We've learned that love is not so much a feeling as it is an action. To love is to give. In fact, to love is to give whatever it is that I have that you need because God wants me to. This has been an especially powerful and encouraging text because through it the Lord is teaching us that Every member of the body of Christ, without exception, can make an extraordinary impact on the church and on the world around them, even if you don't really understand what your spiritual gift is. Maybe you just don't know. Maybe you don't even know where to start finding out what your spiritual gift and your spiritual capacities may be. Even so, you can make a powerful impact on the world and on the church around you simply by learning to love the way God wants you to love. Without exception, this is true. Because the power is not so much in the gift. And we saw that in the beginning of chapter 13. You can have extraordinary gifts and be absolutely useless to the kingdom of God. Or the reverse is also true. You can maybe have a gift that people wouldn't think is that spectacular, And yet, if you know how to love and you're passionate about loving people in a biblical manner, you will have a profound impact on the people who are around you, both in the church and without. And so, this gets really practical, because when you get down to it, I mean, do you want to know how to make a powerful impact on your marriage for the glory of God and for your own joy? Then learn how to love biblically. Do you want to really influence your children to know and follow Christ, learn how to love. Do you really want to be effective at evangelism and community ministry? You want to affect the people that you work with and your neighbors and your community? Learn how to love. The world has put forth all kinds of strategies for making an impact, for having a life that is a life of significance and makes a mark on the world. But what Paul is telling us is, Yes, the world may have its way, but God's is a more excellent way. God's way of making an impact on the world is a more excellent way. It is the biblical way. It is all about love. And so far we've learned, what we've learned about biblical love is number one, love is patient. And you remember on that, we learned that love is long-suffering. It doesn't have a short fuse And we'll see this again in Paul's description of love later on. A loving person does not permit himself to become easily frustrated. And frankly, this is the part that I think, I was considering it this week, 
in my study of this text, I think this is the part that has hit me hardest. Learning to be long-suffering, learning to not be so quick to express frustration with, with people. In fact, if I, can, if I could just elicit your help, would you pray for me on that issue? Pray that God would enable me to be a more patient, more long-suffering person, to demonstrate the love of Christ to my children, my wife, my extended family, and to this church. God has much work to do in my life. And I think he's more passionate about doing it than I am. Second, we learned that love is kind. A loving person actively moves into the life of another person for the purpose of blessing and for the purpose of giving and for meeting needs. In fact, true biblical love has the uncanny ability to respond in an extraordinary way when people are mistreating that person. As we learned last week, true love has the uncanny ability to respond to animosity with generosity. Responding to animosity with generosity. And we looked at, remember Romans chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. With kindness. With kindness. Third, we learned that love is not jealous. A loving person is content with what God has given her and even believes that she has an overflow of relationships and resources through which to bless other people regardless of how rich or poor she may happen to be. You're never at a lack of resources to bless other people because you know how to love and you know how to love the way Christ loves. So today... I'd like to lead us into an examination of the fourth and fifth facets of this spiritual diamond called love. And let's jump right in. If you're taking notes, I guess this is number one, but really it's number four in the list. Number four is this. And in fact, before I read it, let's stand together and read this text as a whole. It's only uh, four verses. 1 Corinthians 13, and you're familiar with this passage. Maybe if we re- recite it again and again, or, or at least hear it read again and again, we'll have it memorized In 1 Corinthians 13, beginning with verse 4, just follow along with me. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. May the Lord once again have his way with us in terms of blessing because of the reading of his word. You can be seated. Love does not brag. Love does not brag. Now, if you haven't been hit by this study so far in the past three weeks, just just get ready, okay? Uh, Somebody said after the first service, we need to establish a trauma unit in the back of the sanctuary. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least have a first aid kit. Because I don't think a single person should be able to make it out of here this morning without a, a piercing of the soul and the weight of the need for us to change. God is passionate about changing who we are. The world says you are what you are, and personalities don't change. And the Bible says horse feathers. It's in the Greek, right? Um, that's not true. The Christian life is all about change. God expects you to change. In fact, if you're a believer, you better be changing because when the Holy Spirit enters into a sinful life, that sinful life starts becoming holy. You start becoming more like Christ. That's change. That's significant change. And all of our characters need to be changed unless Jesus is here this morning. I don't see him. That means we all need to change. We all need to change. We all need to grow. And so let's look at this term. The word for brag here means exactly what you would think it means. It means to boast. Alexander Strzok, in his book, Leading with Love, writes these words. He says, a person who frequently brags has a sinful preoccupation with himself. Braggarts crave attention. 
They want others to praise their abilities, knowledge, success, and even their suffering for God. But they, but they desire, uh, because they desire recognition, they speak too highly and too much of themselves, although they may have nothing significant to say. It's a sad indictment of us. All of us have a propensity to have a higher view of ourselves than we should and to tell other people about our high opinion of ourselves. I'm sure you've met this person, the person who brags. In fact, I'm confident you've met this person in church. He's the one who loves to tell you the things he's done and the places he's been and the people he's met and the accomplishments that he's achieved or intends to achieve in the, in the future. Or she is the woman who thinks that her kids are the brightest, the most all-inspiring children on planet Earth, and, and maybe on some other planets as well. They can leap tall buildings in single bounds and have even been known on occasion to fly. You come away from conversations with such people thinking, Oh, brother, I hope I don't have to talk to that person again anytime soon. That's tedious. Why? Because boasting is incompatible with love. Boasting is incompatible with love. You know what love is? I mean, you, know what, you know what boasting is? Boasting is this. Boasting is an attempt to extract admiration from people, from another person, against their will. Boasting is an attempt to extract admiration from another person against their will. That's not love. You know what that is? It's not love. It's lust. It's lust. Lust says, give me admiration. Say that I'm important. Admire me. Stand in awe of me. Worship me. Worship me. If you believe that you have a low self-esteem or someone has told you you have a low self-esteem, beloved, can I, just, can I just challenge you? That is not a biblical diagnosis. In fact, I would, I would guess that if you have a really low self-esteem, the problem is not, not that you don't love yourself. The problem is that you're really confused because you think that everyone should be worshiping you and they're not. The reality is, if you have a low self-esteem, you want the world to worship you. And when they don't worship you, you begin thinking to yourself, maybe I'm not pretty enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not strong enough. Maybe I'm not talented enough. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Why? Because people aren't bowing down before me. They're not saying, oh, we admire you. We love you. You're so wonderful. You're so beautiful. We just like being with you. And they're not doing that. Beloved, that's lust. That's self-worship. This is what boasting is all about. But this isn't love. To love is to give for the benefit of another person. Boasting doesn't help anybody. It doesn't build up anyone. And that's why it's called, frequently called, empty boasting. I love what Graham Scrooge once wrote. He said this, There is no other kind of boasting than empty boasting. The very nature and essence of a boast is emptiness. In fact, listen to this. Boasting, he says, is always an advertisement of poverty. It's always an advertisement of poverty. It says of the boaster, he has nothing of value to talk about. And so he's talking about himself. Listen, beloved, people of God like you and me need to learn that nothing can be more inglorious than talking about your own glory. Because the reality is we have none, not intrinsically, Yes, we bear the image of God, but it is his image. It is his glory. The glory that we have is Christ's glory. It all belongs to him. So in reality, boasting is the equivalent of self-enthronement. 
actually putting ourselves in God's place, putting ourselves in, on God's throne where the world should come and worship us. And we're just there to invite them. Won't you come? Won't you come? We have literature. <laughs> come, worship me. I've been tremendously helped on this issue by um, Paul Tripp in his excellent book, I commend it to you, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. He points out that um, the fact is God, God created us not to glorify self, but to glorify him. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, we would say, right? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. We understand that's why we were made in his image. But sin makes us glory thieves. Sin makes us glory thieves. Here's what Paul Tripp writes on this topic. He says this, There is probably not a day when we do not plot to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord. When we compete with one another for glory, we fail to experience the unity that can only be found when we join together to live for him. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, or a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory that we love. Sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. We do not suffer well because suffering interferes with our glory. We do not find relationships easy because others compete with us for glory. We do not serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served. I agree with that. This is an application of anthropology, biblical anthropology 101. We were made to bear God's image. But when sin came into the world, it rewired our hearts. We are hardwired now to be glory thieves, to be worship thieves. And so we boast. And this is why we find it difficult to love God and other people as we should. Sin has caused a significant change in our hearts. We who were created to glorify God now live to glorify self, and we don't have to look very far to see clear evidence that this is true. As I've said, you've already met the boaster. He's the man who glories in his past accomplishments, or he's the child who glories in how well he can draw or how fast he can run or how fast he can swim. She's the woman who wants you to admire her home, her looks, her car, her children. She's the Sunday school teacher. He's a deacon or perhaps an elder. And at, t- at times when I am perfectly honest with myself, he is me. He is me. Frankly, some of us are pretty slick about our boasting. We like to boast, but we don't want to be brash. And so we found, we discover ways or we learn ways to boast in kind of a way that doesn't sound so much like boasting. But the motive is the same. And the glory is the same. Brent and I were going out to lunch this week and we got talking. We frequently talk about our sermons before we preach them. Get ready because you're going to hear a lot from him uh, this fall. Um, and we frequently talk about the sermons, and I was talking about this one with him this week, and he introduced me to um, a kind of boasting that I really had never considered. He said, be sure to tell everybody or warn everybody about the humble boast. The humble boast. Now, this could only come from Brent, right? <laughs> the humble boast. And boasting in a way that sounds godly, sounds uh, humble, 
It's when you try to demonstrate how humble and godly you are by sharing about a time when you really blew it. But God brought you graciously to repentance, and now you're all bitter. And how you suffered along the way. It's really hard to go confess that one, I tell you what. But I did it, praise God. And, and people kind of go, okay, that, that was kind of impressive, but I'm, I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's, it's this. It's the idea. Here's the idea. It's to show how great a sinner you are by openly, sorry, it's to show how great a saint you are by openly confessing what a sinner you are. I mean, how warped is that? Attempting to show people how great a saint you are by openly confessing what a sinner you are. It's twisted. And Jeremiah was right. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And Jesus' warnings to his disciples seems especially appropriate here when he writes in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is the message he hammered them with again and again and again. You do that to be seen by men, you have your reward. Men see you, yeah, they're impressed by you. Big deal. You have your reward. That's your reward. You get nothing from God for that. You get nothing from God for that. Now, please don't misunderstand at this point. I'm not saying that we shouldn't confess sin to one another. That would be contrary to Scripture. In fact, to the contrary, we need, we need more of that, not less. We need more contrition, not less. We need more openness in our relationships in terms of walking in the light, as John says, 1 John 1, 7, we need to be walking in the light as he is in the light. And as we do that, we have fellowship with one another. By the way, I think that is the most profound verse on marriage anywhere in the Bible. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What does it mean? It means this. If we're, having an, if we're living with an open and honest attitude about our sin, and we're quick to confess our sin, quick to repent of our sin, then our fellowship with one another is going to be sweet. But if we're hiding it and denying it, we're going to have a rough road. Not only with one another, but with God. And so don't misunderstand me. This is not about not confessing our sin. It's about bragging about past sin. It's about boasting in what in what. You have done. And the question is, not do we confess sin, but why do we say the things that we say? Whatever it is you say, whether it be confessing sin or whether it's just telling a story or whether it's answering a question, why are you saying the things that you're saying? Is it to glorify God and help others grow and change? Or is it simply to extract admiration from another person against their will? And by the way, that usually doesn't work. It usually backfires. Because when we seek to impress other people, those people don't typically walk away feeling admiration, but rather probably a low-grade revulsion about what they've just encountered. Nobody likes a braggart. The reality is, however, that all of us are tempted to do it. All of us are tempted to do it. And there is no exception. In fact, the more privilege you have, the more opportunity you have, the more you're going to be tempted to brag. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. I mean, you talk about a guy who had privileges, unique privileges, of experiencing divine revelations from Almighty God Himself. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that at one point God even took him to the third heaven and he heard things in heaven that were uttered that the Lord told him he couldn't repeat when he came back. And he couches it all in kind of apologetic terms and even in terms that kind of you're not sure whether he's talking about himself or other people because he doesn't want to glory in his experiences. And yet he had them. He had them. You think he was tempted to boast about it? I think so. Why do I think that? 
because you remember Paul. In Paul's life, apparently God thought that he would be tempted to brag because Paul says that God gave him a messenger of Satan. He said, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I'm telling you, everybody, everybody is tempted to engage in sinful boasting, glory thieving, worship thieving, We might even be slick enough to put at the end of our boast, glory to God. But you know your motive. No one in this room should think that he isn't tempted to brag. We all are. And from time to time, every one of us struggles with this kind of unlove. We're hardwired to exalt ourselves. So here are a few pertinent scriptures for us to keep in mind as we battle this. Here's a great one from Proverbs. Proverbs 27.2. We should learn this. Children, you should learn it when you're young. So it's constantly on our minds. Proverbs 27.2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Are you going to be praised? Sure you will. I mean, especially if you're really good at loving other people, you'll be praised. You'll be praised. Let somebody else do that. And not your own lips. A stranger. Let it not come from your own mouth. We should meditate on this verse and have it ready on our hearts and our tongues whenever we find ourselves tempted to boast about anything. Here's another one. Paul writes to the believers in Rome. Romans 12, verse 3. I say to everyone among you, that is everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Think about yourself properly. Don't think too high of yourself. Don't think too low of yourself. Have God's view of who you are. You are an image bearer, and that is a glorious thing to the extent that we are effectively bearing the image of God by loving people and worshiping God. But we need to be careful not to have too high a view of ourselves. We may be saints, but we are still sinners all. And there is never a day when I'm so good that I don't desperately need the long arm of God's righteousness, that I don't need his grace every moment. I'm never, I can get up in the morning, Jerry Bridges points this out, right? You get up in the morning and have your quiet time, have a good time in prayer, You're walking through your day. At the end of the day, someone comes and and says to you, what must I do to be saved? I mean, has that happened to you recently? But just hypothetically, do you feel like you are more spiritually equipped in that moment? Do you think you are righteous enough to carry on that conversation and be powerful for the glory of God? And what about the opposite? What if you wake up in the morning and you're late, and you skip your quiet time, and you cram down breakfast and say something um, rather harsh to your children or your wife on the way out. You're a true believer. You get to the office, now you're feeling convicted. You're kind of late on everything throughout the day. You're absent-minded, too, because you're feeling guilty about how you started the day. At the end of the day, one of your coworkers comes and says, brother, what can I, I mean, man, what, you know, person, whatever. What, dude, right, this is what they say. Oh, dude, what can I do to be saved? Do you in that moment feel like, I I can't talk to you about that. I've had a really bad day. You know what what you're doing? In that moment, you're saying, I haven't accrued enough self-righteousness to be worthy to speak to you about the gospel right now. Or you're saying, I have accrued enough self-righteousness throughout my day to be worthy to speak to you about Christ right now. And both are false. This one is going to make you proud. You fall off the beam to the right, and you're going to end up being proud and Pharisee-like. You fall off the beam the other way, and you're going to be depressed, and you're going to be useless for the kingdom in that direction. Listen, beloved, all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. And if you're a child of God, you have Christ all the time. 
Every sin can be forgiven. Your feet can be washed. Your fellowship can be renewed. At any moment, you're ready to ask for forgiveness. You know what? That happens at the Lord's Supper all the time. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in a few weeks. And, um, and people have asked me, what do I do? I, I, I didn't come prepared, and here comes the plate, and I'm, you know, what do I do? And, and I say, repent. <laughs> you see it coming. Apply the blood and righteousness of Christ then. It doesn't take 20 minutes to take effect. It's not like one of these pills, you know, don't take it before you go in swimming or, you know, whatever. Whatever it is, you take it now. You give yourself the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ in that confession. God, I've sinned. You know I've sinned. This is how I've sinned. I've grieved your heart. Here I am at the Lord's table. I don't want to take the Lord's table in vain. I know your warnings. I don't want to, I don't want to dishonor you. God, right now I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me. And as far as God's concerned, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. And you know what? You may still feel horrible about your day, but there isn't anything keeping you from speaking and ministering with power because it's not your righteousness. It's Christ. It's Christ for righteousness. And all the believers at Corinth had it all wrong. And they had it all upside down. It was all about their own righteousness. It was all about their own talents, their own abilities, their own gifts, their own, their own um, talents that they had given themselves. We need to be careful here. However, Paul is not saying that we should never talk about ourselves or that we should never allow others the opportunity to ask about our needs or interests our desires. He's not saying never talk about yourself. There are times when it's appropriate, and there's times when you should. There are times when a person that you're trying to bless or counsel or help, they need to hear about how God gave you victory over some sin in the past or the process that you walked through to get to a point where you were ready to confess sin and ask for forgiveness from God or from someone else that you submitted to the lordship of Christ. Paul's not saying don't do that. There are occasions when it's appropriate for you to talk about past ministry and how God did marvelous things through your teaching or through your handing out food or your whatever it was that you did, helping your neighbor in some way. There are times when that's appropriate. And we see that in, in the book of Acts in chapters in 14 and 15 when Paul and Barnabas came back to their home church in Antioch and they had to give a report, I mean, they told some amazing stories of what God had done. And you know what? That was good. That was good for that church. It was loving to do that. And so Paul's not saying never talk about yourself. What we do need to learn from this is that we always need to have our radar up relative to our motives. Why? Why are we saying what we're saying? Is it for the other person's good? Is it for the glory of God? Or am I just trying to extract admiration from unwilling people? And by the way, we need to remember Paul's own example when he said this, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll brag about Jesus all day long, but what he did for me and how he changed my life Oh, beloved, let's not be boastful people. Making an impact on the world for God will never come by exalting yourself. If God wants to exalt us, he will do it in the proper time and in the proper way, and he will probably do it through the lips of another person. And so let's not boast. But let's take a few minutes now to look at the next facet in this diamond called love, just briefly, because this one overlaps the previous one, Love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Paul says in the very next phrase, there it is, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. The word arrogant literally means puffed up, inflated, or full of hot air. Instead of being full of love, the arrogant person is full of himself. Whenever I see this word in the Greek, it reminds me when I was a kid 
and uh, grew up in New Jersey, so we'd spend a lot of time at the beach, the Jersey Shore, and we would, uh, whenever we could, my brother and I would do surf fishing. You know, you get out in the water and you cast your line, and, and the fun thing about fishing at sea is you just never know what you're going to pull up. Some of the ugliest creatures you've ever seen and some of the most beautiful. You just never know what you're going to pull out of the sea. And from time to time, we would pull out a blowfish. Have you ever seen a blowfish or a puffer fish? They're kind of pointy and they're funny looking and they got these little lucky fins coming out of either side. And, um, and we used to, you know, you pull them out, take the hook out and they'd, they'd blow up. And we'd kind of toss them around. I know that's bad. I was just a little kid, so don't... No, don't send me letters. And uh, you can't cook them or anything because they're poisonous, but, but we were just always fascinated by these fish. When you pull them out of water, they'd, they'd, they'd puff up. And that's what I always think about when I, when I see this word. This is what people do when they're arrogant. When I'm arrogant, all I'm doing is puffing myself up with myself. This was a significant problem in Corinth. Most of the conflict that the church in Corinth had was owing to a spirit of arrogance that prevailed among them. Apparently, some were acting as if they thought they, their own, their, their talents, their gifts, their abilities were brought about by themselves. They were kind of the quintessential self-made men. And the other people around them who weren't as gifted and as wise and as able to speak you know, as far as they were concerned, their, their, their problem was they just haven't tried hard enough. They haven't disciplined themselves. You got to work at this. You got to be a self-made man. And they were arrogant. They were arrogant. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 4, just maybe three or four pages to the left here. And look at verses 6 and 7. Because Paul kind of attacks this issue of arrogance right here. Right at the, sort of the beginning of this letter. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Now the point here is, if you can remember back that far when we were in 1 Corinthians 4, and the, the whole issue was these guys were, were not being submissive to God's word. And Paul would come along or Apollos would come along and say, listen, you guys, look, here's the scriptures. This is the way you should be living. And they didn't care. They had lifted themselves up. They had put themselves above the word of God. We are the interpreters of the word of God. We are the one who says, I mean, like their own Catholic magisterium, we are higher than scripture. And Paul was saying, look, you guys need to learn not to exceed what is written so that and here's why. So that no one of you will become arrogant, there's that word, in behalf of one against another. There's the divisions that were being caused by their arrogance. And then Paul launches into three questions. Three questions to kind of reveal their, the foolishness of their arrogance. In verse 7, he, he writes this, first of all. Who regards you as superior who made you so superior, so high and mighty? I mean, who made you the Pope? Who put you in the chair? Why do you get to call the shots? Who made you different from everybody else? You think you're in a class all by yourself, and no one is as gifted, no one's as, in talent, as talented, nobody is as intelligent as you are. You're the smartest guy in the room. You're the one who wears the power tie. Who made you that way? This is the heart of arrogance. But the person who's focused on loving people for the glory of God will never allow himself to succumb to this attitude. And when he does, he's quick to repent. Second, notice the second question in verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? So first of all, who regards you as superior? You think you're superior to everybody else. Well, tell me this. What do you have that you didn't receive? I mean, you think you're superior because you have these gifts, these talents, these abilities. Where did you get them? The obvious answer to uh, what do you have that you did not receive, the answer is nothing. Everything I have is a gift. 
Everything has been given to me. I am not the originator, the creator, the progenitor of my own giftedness. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But an arrogant person doesn't think this way. He doesn't think of himself in terms of being the beneficiary of God's blessings, but rather simply as the possessor of the greater gifts. And he thinks he produced them himself by his own effort, or at least that's how he acts. And so who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Third question, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And notice the word boast again. Why are you all puffed up as if you did not receive it? They boasted about themselves because they were full of themselves. They were arrogant. They had too high a view of themselves. And what about us in our relationships with other people? Do we have too high a view of our accomplishments, things we've done, places we've been, people we know? Maybe you're real excited about things that that God's not so excited about. A wonderful house that you have. It's great to have a great house. It's wonderful to have a wonderful house. To the extent that you believe that house was a gift of God that you didn't deserve. It's not wrong to have a nice car. You can have a nice car if God's given you the means to do that without sinning. Great. A wonderful car. That's great. As long as as you can enjoy that car without sinning. As long as you see it as a gift from God's hand, something that you didn't deserve, then that's wonderful. Has God given you bright children? That's great. As long as you understand that it's a gift from God's hand, that you didn't make those children what they are. And you got a wonderful church? That's good too. But if you're the pastor of that church, you better remind yourself, you didn't create this thing. This is a gift. This is God's work. This, is, comes, this comes from God's hand, and he alone gets the glory. You see the difference? God has given us all things to enjoy, but he has given them. And we are the recipients, recipients who deserve nothing but hell. And he has given us grace upon grace upon grace. That creates a kind of attitude in us that is compelling to other people, that causes, causes our lives to have an impact on other people. Now, I realize that these truths kind of cut into our souls like a, a heated, sharp knife. And if you're not feeling real good about this sermon or about yourself, then let me just, let me just remind you, I mean, isn't that, isn't that the purpose of God's Word? Let God's word have his work, have its work in you. You remember Ephesians chapter 4? The author says this, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what this is about. Are you letting the Holy Spirit judge your thoughts and intentions? Are you thinking about the conversations you had this morning or last night, sometime yesterday or this week? When you look back, do you see pride? Do you see arrogance? Do you see jealousy? Do you see a lack of kindness? Do you see being short-tempered or or are you long-suffering? What is it that the Word of God is revealing in your life? And you know what amazes me? What amazes me is, even as the word of God, like a knife, lays my heart bare before me and God, and we see all of this sin. And by the way, I only confessed one this morning. I, I, we can go through this whole list, and if you were to put a microscope under my life, put me in a fishbowl for a while, you'd see every one of these in my life. And I'd see every one in yours. The amazing thing is, God chooses to use us anyway. He knows what he's got. 
He knows when he came to our orphanage and found us, as it were, as good as dead, and he adopted us into his family, the only thing that we brought was our debt, the only thing that we brought was our sin, and he adopted us anyway. He knew what he was getting. When he caused us to be born again to a living hope, he knew exactly what he was getting. He knows exactly what he has now. And yet he is prepared to use us in extraordinary ways for his glory. Why does he do that? Behold the kindness and affection and glory of the Lord our God. Consider this. Jesus is our example. Jesus lived to glorify the Father, same as us. Unlike us, however, he really is God. I mean, sometimes we pretend to be God, we dethrone him, we're glory thieves, but he really was. He really was God. He really is God. And he's worthy of worship from every human being who came in contact with him in his day and every day since then and every day that will be. Every human being who has ever lived should rightfully and will someday bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ. But the stunning thing is that he never demanded it. He never demanded it. He never manipulated people to get it. He never twisted anybody's arm. He never sought to extract admiration from people against their will. He just focused on glorifying the Father and serving people and loving. I mean, think about it. Even the day, even at the moment they were throwing him to the cross to murder him, they were putting the nails in his feet and hands. And what was he doing in response? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to God. And that's how he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How can you do that when someone's nailing you to a hunk of wood? What was he doing? He was loving them. He was giving them what they needed in that moment, that which he had, because he knew God God wanted them to. And you know what? Jesus' prayer was answered. In the 50 days that followed, I mean, Luke tells us in the book of Acts about the priests and and the soldiers who came to, to place their faith in Christ, even the thief on the cross who started out mocking that day, but at the end said, remember me when you come into my, into your kingdom. God answered Jesus' prayer. Why was he praying? Because he loved. He loved. He was the essence of biblical love. And he never once sought to extract admiration from people against their will. And so Jesus was the living example of love. Even though he really was God, his was a love that did not boast and was not arrogant. Concerning him, John MacArthur writes these words, Jesus was God incarnate, yet he never exalted himself in any way. Paul writes, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Jesus, MacArthur writes, who had everything to boast of, never boasted. In total contrast, we who have nothing to boast of are prone to boast. Only the love that comes from Jesus Christ can save us from flaunting our knowledge, our abilities, our gifts, and our accomplishments, real or imagined. Only the love of Christ. And the amazing thing is, God has given us the love of Christ. And he's done that for the purpose of changing us. You don't have to be the same person you've always been. You can change The gospel is about radical change. The Holy Spirit has come to progressively sanctify you. That means change. He wants you to grow. He expects you to grow. He empowers you to grow. You don't have to stay who you are. Beloved, I don't know about you, but that greatly encourages me. And it helps me to evaluate my own heart. 
realizing that God is at work in me both to will and to work to bring about these changes. Well, that leaves us with plenty to pray about, doesn't it? And work on this week. And so let me just ask here in closing, how is God calling you to change because of these truths? You might write down that question and ponder it as you leave today. What specific things can you do to apply these truths to your life? What element of false worship or obstacle to pure worship needs to be put off? And how do our minds need to be renewed? And what needs to be put on in the likeness of Christ in its place? And so as we wrestle with these things this week, let's be sure to remember that no matter how gifted we may be, a boastful and arrogant attitude will nullify the impact of our ministry. But may we be diligent to learn to love as Christ loves. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks this morning for exposing the things that we don't like to see. In fact, as plain as they sometimes are to other people, we are blind to our own blindness. We don't even realize that we can't see the sinful tendencies and impulses of our hearts. And yet on mornings like this, your word and your spirit seem to lay us bare. And we praise you for that because we have not come today so that you will make us feel good about ourselves. We've come today to ask you to change us and conform us to the image of Christ so that we can live to his glory and proclaim his excellencies and live a life that is worthy of the gospel and worthy of the Lord Jesus and thereby to proclaim to the world what God is like and to show our children and our neighbors and our co-workers what God is like and to disciple one another and engage in personal ministry with one another, showing each other what God is like so that we would be conformed to Christ. And it's in his name, Father, that we pray. Amen.